Good morning. It's really good to see you guys. I am excited to be here. I am excited that it's Easter. What a, what a great day for celebrating. And we're just getting started. If you uh, like singing and you're thinking, man, only two songs, uh, don't worry. We're going to sing some more. And uh, we're going to really celebrate. We celebrate today the greatest victory that's ever been won. Yes. Three days after he was put to death and put in the ground, Jesus of Nazareth walked out of his tomb alive and well. And what makes that so great is it changes everything for us. He conquered death for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead to give us life and hope and peace. It's just so great. And the thing I want to talk about this morning, uh, you know, because Easter seals the deal. Easter seals the deal. I mean, the resurrection validates everything Jesus came to accomplish, everything he said, everything he did. And the thing I want to talk about that he came to accomplish this morning is this thing called restoration. Restoration. We, we often call Jesus Lord, and we often call him Savior, and rightly so. But you know something else we could call him? We could call him Restorer. Restorer. Because he came to accomplish. One of the things Jesus now is alive and, and lives to do is bring about God's restoration. To restore us to what God meant for us to be. Because see, that, that's the idea behind restoration. You know what it is. Restoration Something needs restoration when it's, when it's messed up, when it's, it's broken, when it's damaged, when it, it doesn't look like it's supposed to look, it doesn't do what it's meant to do. Um, it's just, it's meant to be something, but it isn't, because something's wrong with it. So I did a little research on restoration, and I say it like that because that sounds a lot more impressive than saying I googled the word restoration, <clears throat> which is what I did. And I was actually, I was kind of surprised to find out how many different kinds of restoration there are. So I, I got some pictures to show you, some before and after shots, before restoration and after. So here's the first one you can see, it's a, is that a dresser, I guess, or a desk? And uh, you can see what it looked like before on the left side and after on the right. That's pretty cool. Uh, let's go to the next one here. Yeah, I found that pretty impressive. I mean, you see the damage. Obviously, a very serious accident. And look what it looks like afterward. Amazing. And then the next one here. Okay, this is a sofa. On the left, you wouldn't really want to sit on that. On the right. You wouldn't want to sit on it either because you'd be afraid you'd mess it up, right? That's the couch that's, thou shalt not sit on this couch, children. Um, and the next one here, yeah, it's a little ugly for first thing in the morning, but look at that. Isn't that impressive? Before and after tooth restoration. And then this one, I don't know if you can see that, but on the left side, it's a... Uh, a paint, an old painting and frame before it's restored and then the right after. And then this one. (laughs) 
You know, Jesus said he's going to change us. That's what I'm hoping for. Actually, I think it's going to be even better than that, really. So, uh, you can go ahead and get rid of that, Sylvia, please. I don't want him looking over my shoulder the whole time. <laughs> so, I was, I was thinking about restoration and what all these different kinds of restoration have in common. And two words came to my mind. Uh, the word costly and the word competent. Costly because it costs a lot to restore something that needs restoring. And if you've ever had any body work done on a car, you know that's true. It's costly. The other thing is it takes somebody who's competent, somebody who really knows what they're doing and they have the skill, they have the knowledge, they have all the resources they need to, to bring something to its intended condition. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, those two words perfectly describe Jesus and the restoration he came to accomplish in our lives. It, he's competent, and he's the only one who is. He's the only one who knows. He's the only one who's able, the only one who has the resources to, to bring us to the condition that God intends for us to be. And his restoration is costly, more costly than, than you and I can really grasp. It, it, Jesus suffered the agonies of the cross and died in order to bring about uh, God's restoration in our lives. And he willingly paid that price, the price that we could not pay. The question is, how do we experience his restoration? How do we experience his restoring work in our lives? Well, I want to look this morning at a, a story that comes from the days right after Jesus was raised from the dead, because I think there's some important things we need to know about experiencing his restoration that we can pick up from this story. There's actually two stories here. It's in it's in the Gospel of John, the fourth of the four biographies we have about Jesus, who he is, and uh, all that he did. And there, there's two stories in John 21. So what I'm, what I'm wanting to do is, is we're going to do part one today on, on one kind of restoration. And then I'm going to save part two for next time, which is not next Easter. It's actually just next Sunday. And uh, we'll, we'll look at part two of Jesus as our restorer and the great restoration. But let's look in John chapter 1. If you have a Bible and you want to open it there to John 21, there's also a note sheet in your folder if you want to take some notes. And the, the passage is also written on that. So if you want to grab that and take a look, let's dive in. So this is John chapter 21. And we're going to begin right at verse 1. So after this, that's referring to chapter 20, where Jesus is raised from the dead and all the wonderful things that happen in chapter 20. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, it would be James and John, 
and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And when you read this, you know, you're, you're going along in the book of John, you're reading about all this tremendous stuff, and it's just amazing. Jesus rises from the dead, and you get to this chapter 21, and you, it just kind of raises a question. Is this what these guys are supposed to be doing? Are they doing something wrong here? Have they kind of gotten off track? I mean, didn't Jesus tell them they were going to become fishers of men? Shouldn't they be out telling people about Jesus or something? I mean, aren't they supposed to be out, you know, taking the message to the whole world? That's what we read about in the rest of the New Testament. Isn't that what the apostles were supposed to do? Are, Are these guys doing something wrong? Are they off track here? It's really hard to say, because it it doesn't say specifically. Um, Jesus had told them to go up to Galilee, and he was going to meet them there and give them instructions. And you know, when he told them to go to Galilee, he didn't say, and whatever you do, don't fish. He didn't say that. And these guys were commercial fishermen. That was their trade. And you know, they've got to eat, so why not do what you know, right? And yet... And yet, when you read this, you just can't help get the feeling that there's just something that's not quite right about this. That there's just something fishy about this. I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. I just, I had to do it. But no, there's something fishy about this in more ways than one. And you get the idea as we read this that we're supposed to learn something here from the fact that they went out fishing all night and caught nothing, and they didn't catch anything until, as we're going to see shortly, Jesus enters the story. Because whatever else you might say about their fishing, it was definitely not fruitful. It was not productive. You know, they, this was an exercise in futility. Uh, they had spent all night at it because that's how you fish this lake in those days. You know, fishing with net, you need to fish when it's dark so the fish don't see the net. Apparently, that's what they always did. They worked at it. They worked at it all night. What do they have to show for it? Zip. Nothing. These guys fished the way I fish, the way I usually fish. You know, where you have to be out there and you, so you, you end up saying something like, boy, it's sure good just to be out here, isn't it? It's just a nice day. It's beautiful. Enjoying God's creation. And out here on the water, it's just so calm. It's so peaceful. Yeah, it's peaceful because you're not catching any fish. And in the midst of this futility, Jesus shows up. Now, they don't recognize him at first because it's just starting to get light. It's, it's early in the morning, and Jesus is on shore about 100 yards away, and they can't quite make out who's talking to them. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, which that sounds weird to us, but 
probably, we'd better translate it something like, hey guys, that was sort of the thought here. Children, do you have any fish? <laughs> they answered him, no. I don't know if any of you are you know, fisher people, but when you're out fishing and you're not catching anything, really the last thing you want is for somebody to come along who's not fishing to ask you if you're catching anything. And you say, no. No, they say, we're not, we're not catching anything. Can't you tell? I mean, the boat's riding pretty high in the water here. And we've been doing this all night. We've been circling around, dropping the net, circling around, pulling it in all night long, and we've got nothing. There are no fish here. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Some of you are thinking, hey, at last, something from church I can actually use. There's a biblically correct side of the boat to fish from. So, cast the net on the right side of the boat. So, the guy on the shore's got a suggestion. And, you know, when you have been fine-tuning futility, when you've been working for hours and hours and hours, and you've got nothing to show for it, don't you just love someone coming along and giving you a suggestion? You know, don't you think these guys are just, they've just been saying to themselves, hey, you know, what we're doing isn't working. I sure hope some amateur walks by and tells us how we professionals can, can do it right. No, that is not where they're at. Maybe that's not where you're at either. Maybe you didn't come here this morning looking for answers. Like to that question of, of uh, that's what to do with that sense of futility that you sometimes wrestle with. You know that feeling you get when in the midst of all your busyness, you just kind of stop and say, well, what is the point? What is the point of all this? What am I doing all this for? You know, those moments when you just, you get the sense that this, this life ought to count for more, that I ought to, my life ought to be about more than just successfully completing the rat race, getting to the end a little ahead of some other rats. Maybe you weren't looking for the answer to that. But now, suddenly, there's somebody who shows up who's got the answer. See, it turns out that this guy on the shore, he's not just some amateur fisherman walking by. This is the resurrected Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one who's got the answers. He's the one we should listen to. And he says to these fishermen floundering in their futility, he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Can you imagine what that sounded like to these guys? I mean, they're, they're looking at each other. They're thinking, well, come on, we've been at this all night. We've been doing this all night. And we know this lake. And we know fishing. And there are no fish. They've either gone deep because, I don't know, they're just, they're not here. They're not fishing. And now it's morning and the fish can see the net. If it didn't work at night, it's sure not going to work now. And here's this guy and he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Well, now why didn't we think of that? Here all this time. Did you hear that, guys? Our problem is all night long we've been just throwing the net from the wrong side of the boat. But for some reason they do it. 
doesn't say why. I don't know, maybe they were just like, well, what do we got to lose? Or you know what, maybe, just maybe, this was starting to sound kind of familiar. You know, this kind of sounds like a couple years ago when we were out fishing all night and we didn't catch anything and, and Jesus came by and he told us to let down the nets and, hey, wait a minute. Maybe we should do what this guy says. For whatever reason, they do it. And you know what? This shows us, this shows us how being restored from futility starts. It starts when you admit that you're in it. You admit that you're in that that things are futile on your own. You need an answer that you don't have. So it says they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They do what Jesus said. Don't miss that. They do what Jesus said and wham, fish city. Is there a lesson here? I think there is. And I think it's a lot bigger than fishing. And if you want to write it down, if you turn your note sheet over, there's a place for you to write it down. I think the lesson we're supposed to learn is something like this. Jesus is the one who restores us from futility. Jesus is the one who restores us from futility. When he's calling the shots in your life, when he's the one giving your directions, when he's the one you're listening to, when he's the one you're following, your life goes from futility to fruitfulness, from futile to fruitful. And see, this isn't just some spiritual lesson here. I mean, look at these guys. They're not out there doing something spiritual, what we would call spiritual. You know, they're fishing. They're just trying to make a living. This was just normal life. And yet, something wasn't quite right until they started listening to Jesus and following his directions. And see, this applies tomorrow. We don't want to miss this here and say, oh, okay, so if I, uh, you know, put my trust in Jesus and read the Bible, I guess every time I go fishing, I'm going to catch lots of fish. No, that's not the point. The point is whatever part of life we're talking about, real life, the difference comes when we're following Jesus' directions, when we're trusting him, when we are letting him call the shots. Jesus didn't come just to restore our spiritual lives. He didn't die on a cross and rise from the dead so that we could acknowledge him for an hour on Sundays. He came to, he came to restore our whole lives. He came so we could know him and acknowledge him in all of our life and follow his directions in all of our life. You know, he's, got, he's really got something to say about everything about all of life. That's how Jesus restores us from futility. That's when we begin to experience what we were meant to be. 
Jesus said in John 10.10, he said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He came, he came to restore us from a life that, that just feels futile, that is futile. The futility of a life lived apart from God. And to connect us to God, to a life lived in connection with God. God, who is the source of life, the source of real life, the source of real meaning, the source of real purpose. Jesus came to do this, to to enable us to live a life of true meaning and joy and satisfaction. You know something? You don't have to be a terrible person to miss that. You don't have to be a terrible person to miss out on the meaning and the life and the, the, the purpose and the joy that Christ came to give us. You know, sometimes I think people misunderstand what it means when the Bible says, when it calls us sinful. You know, it sounds like, you know, the Bible's telling us that we're all as, just as bad as we could possibly be. And so, you know, if you're sitting there thinking, I, you know, I'm really not that bad because I'm not a mafia hit man. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a child pornographer. I'm not like all those terrible people that show up in the news every night. So you may think, well, okay, so I don't really need Jesus. I don't need his forgiveness. I didn't need him to die on a cross for me. See, that misses the point. It misses the point completely. The, the Calling us sinful, the Bible's not telling us that we're all as bad as we could possibly be. That is not the essence of sin. You know what the essence of sin is? Self-rule. Self-rule. Saying, I'm in charge. I'm the one who rules me. I'm the one who decides what's good and what isn't. I'm the one who decides what's right and what's wrong. Which is basically telling God, who is the source of, of life in me. I mean, he's the one who made us. He knows what our life is for. It's saying to this God who gives us every breath that we breathe, whether we realize it or not, it's saying to this God, I don't need you. I don't need you in my life. I don't want you in my life. You can just get lost because I'm in charge. That's the essence of sin. Self-determination. And that, my friends, is what is responsible for all of the misery in this world. And that is what is responsible for all of the futility in our lives. We live with this persistent sense that something's just not right. There's something just not right. No matter how hard we try, it's never hard enough. We still struggle. We, we struggle with feeling empty. And, and bad things are happening all around us. Bad things are happening to people we love. The world is going crazy. And we just wonder, what in the world is the point of it all? And Jesus is saying, I'm the point. I'm the point. Don't live your lives as if Easter never happened. 
Don't live your lives as, as if I didn't die and rise from the dead. See, from now on, all of life is meant to, you know, whether you're fishing, going to work, school, playground, whatever. All of life is meant to be lived in light of me. I died and I rose from the dead to transform your life. To rescue you from the arrogance, from the futility of a self-directed life. To give you a life that's fruitful in me. That's what he means when he says, I came to give them abundant life. A life that is fruitful, a life that is meaningful, a life that matters. Jesus is saying, I came to restore you to the life God meant for you to live. That's what I came to do. How do we experience that? How does that happen? Well, let's read on. That disciple whom Jesus loved, and probably that's John referring to himself, it's the Apostle John, and I kind of love that. You know, you may hear that and say, well, that sounds kind of arrogant of John say, I'm the one Jesus loved. I don't think that's what he meant. I think in terms of as he thought about life, he, he just didn't even feel worthy to put his name out there. He just, I'm just somebody Jesus loved. That's, that's who I am. Probably that's John. He, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. <laughs> I just, I love this. You know, here, here, okay, so they got the nets, they're just full of fish, they can't even bring them into the boat, there's so many, and one of the disciples, okay, it's probably John, he figures it out, he figures it out, okay, there's only one person who could turn things around like this, and so he turns to Peter and he says, it's the Lord, it's Jesus, and Peter hears that, and he jumps in the water, (laughs) you're going, what? What are you doing? Why did he do that? Was he just sick of fishing? He just didn't want to help? So I'll let these guys handle it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. No, I don't think so. Remember, he's the one who wanted to go fishing in the first place. He's a professional fisherman. This could well be the biggest catch of his life. And he doesn't care. You know Why? Because there's something he wanted more than fish. There's something he wanted more than vocational success. He wants to get next to Jesus. And he wants to get there now. And this boat is too slow. When Jesus becomes your top priority. When Jesus becomes the one that you center your life around that's when everything else every other part of your life starts to fall into its proper orbit verse 9 when they got out on land they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread jesus said to them bring some of the fish you have just caught so simon peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish he's a strong guy 153 of them. And it's kind of funny. People have been debating for centuries 
what the significance of that number 153 is. I think I figured it out. You know what it means? It means there were a lot of fish. <laughs> Somebody counted them. That's how many there were. It, it's 153 fish. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who restores us from futility, who restores us to the the life God means for us to live. Now the question is, why would you want him to do that? Why would you want to put Jesus first place in your life? Why would you want to center your life around him? Why would you want him to be the one who calls the shots in your life? To be the one who defines for you What's good, what isn't, what's right, what's wrong? Why would you want him to be the one who shows you what matters and what doesn't and what what will make your life really count? Besides the fact that you and I can't figure it out on our own. See, those issues, those are God things. You know, only the creator knows what the creation is for. Only God can answer those things. Only God, you know, the, the, the issue of purpose and meaning and significance and all of that, that's a God thing, and you and I aren't God. But why is Jesus the one? Why is Jesus the one who can restore us from futility and enable us to live a life with true meaning? Well, I see a couple of reasons here. And the first is pretty obvious. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. I mean, he died, they all knew he was dead, and three days later, he is seen alive by many eyewitnesses on several different occasions. He rose from the dead. That makes a difference. That, as I said earlier, that, that validates everything Jesus said and did. And one of the things he said was this. He said he is the one and the only one who can connect us to God in real life. John 14, 6, look at this. Jesus said to him, okay, if you're used to hearing churchy kinds of words and you've heard this before, just let this sink in. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an outrageous claim. If it's not true. And it would be an outrageous thing if anybody else said it, but it's kind of hard to argue with a guy who rose from the dead and who did all of the things and said all the things that Jesus did and said. Now, if that's not completely compelling, there's another reason. He not only rose from the dead, he is also full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. To say it another way, all of the goodness of God is in him. You know, back in the very first verse of this book, this this gospel of John, John says this, he says, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you get to verse 14, and he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we, John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only, the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that interesting? Of all the things he could have said about Jesus, of all the things that were true of him, the thing that he just was overwhelmed by, the way he describes his glory is grace and truth. And then he just goes on through the rest of the book, showing us the glory of God in the person of Jesus, full of grace and truth. And we see it right here. And we see it right here. Um, Did you notice the word revealed in this story? It it occurs three times. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. And then you get down to verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You know, that's kind of a weird word to use. It's a very strange word if the only point is that the disciples saw Jesus. I mean, we would never use that word to describe an ordinary encounter with an ordinary person. You know, I'm not going to say, hey, yeah, I was down at the mall yesterday and, and Joe revealed himself to me. You go, that's weird. <laughs> I'm not sure what you're saying, but that's just weird. <laughs> no. What's the point? Why use that word? It's because when you see Jesus, there's a revelation there of something greater than just flesh and blood. When you see Jesus, you see more than a man. Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, God. You don't just see a man when you look at Jesus, you see God. You see all of God's grace and truth wrapped up in a man. And so I, I can't think of a better word to describe what happens here besides grace. You Think about what's happening here. Okay, here's the one. They, they come out of the boat, they come here, and here's the one standing before them, the one who died on a cross, this agonizing, excruciating death, to pay for the sins of foolish, arrogant, selfish people like these guys, like me, like all the rest of us, and who then conquered death and rose from the dead to rule as king of our lives. And this majestic, amazing, awesome person with all authority in heaven and earth makes breakfast and serves it to these guys. How gracious is that? How kind is that? How undeserved is that? You know, I think if I were Lord of heaven and earth, and thank God I'm not, but if I were, and I'd just gone through all Jesus had gone through, and had just done for them what what he, he had done for them, I think I'd be saying, 
hey, how about a little breakfast? Let's go. I helped you catch the fish. You weren't fishing. And you, I mean, you weren't catching until I said, right side of the boat, you got the fish. Come on, let's, let's serve me. He doesn't do that. And remember, <laughs> remember, these men had abandoned Jesus. They had fled for their lives when he was arrested. I mean, we tend to remember Peter's failure the most, but they, they pretty much all failed him. They all took off. And here he is serving them. Why? Grace. They need him. They need breakfast, he serves them breakfast. They need forgiveness, he gives them forgiveness. They need direction, he gives them direction. They need purpose, he gives them purpose. He is rearranging their whole lives. It's grace. There's a lesson here. There's a lesson here. The Christian message is not what so many people think it is. And it might not be what you think it is. The Christian message is not, hey, There's a bunch of stuff God wants you to do. Let's get busy. Do it. The Christian message is not about us doing a bunch of stuff for God. The Christian message is not us meeting God's needs. The gospel is not a help wanted sign. The gospel is a help available sign. It's not about us meeting God's needs. God has no needs. The gospel is God meeting our needs. In Jesus Christ. All of them. All of them. Perfect applause line right there. All of them. Our need for forgiveness. Our need for eternal life. Our need for joy. And, and a sense of meaning in this, in this world where everything seems so futile. And our need, our need for the hope that God will one day deliver us from futility. And who will one day make right every wrong. Our need, he even meets our need for breakfast. Have you thought about that this morning? The daily bread thing? And it's so easy for us to think, well, you know, I mean, I work hard. I earn my money. I, I buy my groceries. Yeah, where'd those groceries come from? Oh, I don't know. Some farmer grew it. Really? Where'd he get them? Well, the stuff grew out of the ground. How'd that happen? He even meets our need for breakfast, daily bread. He meets all of them. Listen. You can't serve God. You can't serve God until you first let Him serve you. And let Him meet your greatest need, which is a relationship with Him. The forgiveness you need, the life you need that he alone can give you. You, you can't reach up to God. You can't do it. I mean, if we took a little uh, exercise here and said, hey, I'll give a thousand bucks to anybody who can reach up and touch that ceiling. My money's safe because you can't do it. I mean, some of you could reach higher than others, but there's nobody touching that. You can't reach up to God. You can only let God reach down to you. And the great news of Easter is that is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to do that. Look at Matthew 20, 28. Jesus said this, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and give his life as a ransom for many. Look at Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives. He gives. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. God gives. Jesus gives. That's grace. Jesus giving us what we need, giving us what we never could earn, that's grace. He's full of grace and truth. There is no one else who can restore you to what God wants you to be. There is no one else. He can do it. He rose from the dead. He's full of grace and truth. He can do it. And he wants to do it for you. He wants to do that. He loves you. He loves you. And because he loves you, he is saying to you, just stop. Stop. Stop living as if I didn't die and rise from the dead for you. Stop living as if that doesn't make any difference. Trust me. Trust me with all of your lostness and all of your uncertainty and all of your foolishness and all of your sin and all of your futility. Let me lead you to life because I'm the only one who can. So maybe hearing this awakens a desire in you. Maybe you want your life to be meaningful. You want it to be fruitful. And you're realizing, I I don't know how to get there. I can't get there on my own, obviously. And this idea of being restored from futility to live the life that God meant for you to live, a life that's fruitful, that sounds good. You know what I'm doing? (laughs) All I'm doing is what that disciple said in the boat. That's all I'm doing. All I'm doing is leaning over and saying to you, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the Lord. The source of new life, the source of purpose, the source of restoration from futility to fruitfulness, it's Jesus, the risen Lord. He's right here. He's right here. And he's willing and he's able to restore you. Peter didn't delay. Man, as soon as he heard it was Jesus, right over the edge, man, he was all in. Peter wanted whatever Jesus had for him. He wanted restoration. He he wanted God's way. He was tired of doing it his way. How about you? How about you? Are you tired of being busy but empty? Do you want the abundant life that Jesus promised? If so, you just need to come to him. You just need to come to him. 
you're not sitting in a boat and we're not on the water and you don't have to jump in, but come to him. Just ask him. That's what I mean. The, the, the Bible word for doing this, for coming to Jesus, is called faith or believing or actually the word I think that captures it best, trusting. Trusting him. Take the step of actually putting your trust in Jesus. Ask him to do his work of restoration in you. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe you may put your confidence in this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And if you would like to put your trust in Jesus, if you would like to ask him for his forgiveness, for his leadership, for him to do his restoring work in your life, to begin that work today, this would be a perfect time to ask him. So I'm going to ask us to, in here in just a second, to bow our heads. And you might think, well, I don't, I don't even know what to say. You know what? The exact words really aren't the issue. It'd just be something like, okay, Lord Jesus, I'm... I'm hearing this, and, I'm, and I, I realize that life on my own is futile. I, I can't figure it out, and I, I realize that pretty much I've been doing it my own way and totally disregarding anything you have to say about it, and, and I'm sorry. And I, I'm asking you to forgive me for that, and I'm asking you to begin your work of restoring me because you're gracious and you're, you're alive. Just something like that. So bow your heads with me, and I'm just going to give us a few moments here to be quiet. In the quietness of your own heart, you just ask the Lord for whatever you want to ask him for today. Tell him whatever you want to tell him. And in just a minute, I will pray and Finish that off. Just go to him. Lord Jesus, we've gathered here this morning just to acknowledge that you are risen. But Lord, I know that that could easily just be some kind of interesting historical fact that really doesn't make a difference in our lives. And that's not what you intend. That's not why you died and rose from the dead. You did not do that so we could have this service once a year and, and remember it. You did that so we could know you every day and we could experience your grace and your truth every day in our lives. Your very presence in our lives. And that, Lord, is so gracious of you because we know we don't deserve that. And I'm just asking for all of us, for every person here, that you would help us understand what it means to come to you as our great restorer 
and, and trusting you every day to, to learn what it means to live life in light of you. Help us with this, Lord. We ask you to be gracious to us and pour out your work of restoration in our lives. Make us the people you want us to be. And I pray this in your name. Amen.